We had no power. We had no steering. We had no propulsion. We were essentially a cork in a bathtub at the whim of the weather. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no problem. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the plane burst Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Today, Thomas Kay spoke with Commodore Alison Norris, who is also currently serving in the Royal Australian Navy. Hi, I'm Thomas Kay, and I'm joined by Commodore Alison Norris. Alison, thank you for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. So we'll start from the beginning. Um, what inspired you to join the Navy? I joined the Navy on a whim. It wasn't something that I had planned. It came to me uh, when the recruiters came to the school. They made it sound like an amazing opportunity and they were right. And so I applied to join and was successful. And here I am a number of years later, having had a amazing, remarkable and fantastic opportunity in the, in the Navy over the last nearly 30 years. How did you find your training experience? I was not prepared uh, for life in the military, I have to say. It was, I was shocked, I think, when I first joined. Uh, the culture was different. It wasn't quite what I expected, but it was a challenge. And it presented me with many opportunities to test myself, uh, test my leadership, my physical and mental stamina. My first couple of years at ADFA, I look back uh, very fondly about the times that I spent there, the studies, the people that I met, uh, and it was an amazing learning experience. Can you give us an overview of your career from 1991 to 99? So the 90s for me was essentially a year that I spent in training, but also I spent uh, at sea in a number of warships. One of the things that I would, should probably mention is that when I first uh, joined the Navy, women couldn't serve at sea in combat-related roles. And it wasn't until the early 90s that the legislation was changed that allowed me to have the career that I have had for the majority of my time in the Navy. So that was a an opportunity for me where I was in the right place at the right time to take advantage of the situation. So when that legislation was changed, I was able to undertake a warfare focus for my career. So the 90s, I essentially spent as a bridge watchkeeper on a couple of our warships. I also spent it doing training as a fighter controller, so controlling our F-18s and other fighter aircraft. And then I moved into, uh, I did a year's training as a principal warfare officer and became an air warfare specialist. So the 90s, I spent uh, basically focused on tactics and warfare, and the majority of my time was spent at sea. And it's just a wonderful time that I look back on about the things I learned from the people around me, but I learned so much about warfare and how to operate a warship at sea. Operation 
Damask. Can you recap the context of this operation and its mission? So Operation Damask, uh, we participated in that in 1993 and the majority of our time was spent in the northern Red Sea. Our focus was to conduct boardings on vessels that may have been coming down uh, through the Suez Canal that may have had illicit cargo on board that may have been in support of activities that were being undertaken in the Middle East region at that time. So we spent six months up there. It was a unique experience for me. I had never served in the Middle East before. I'd never visited many of the countries that we were conducting port visits, but it was also a, a time of upheaval from the point of view of the activities that Saddam Hussein was undertaking, the invasion of Kuwait, and also the issues that were occurring with regard to the economy and the area around us. So that was a new experience for me, and it was my first operational deployment. So what was your personal experience on the mission? So I was an officer of the watch on board HMAS Sydney during Damask. So essentially, I was responsible for not so much navigating the ship, but keeping us safe, I guess, during the um, the watches that I kept. So we would normally keep four hours on and eight hours off. And so I was entrusted with the safety and transit, I guess, of the ship and the mission that we were undertaking. So whatever the task happened to be at the time, whether it was helicopter operations, boarding operations, or whether we were just doing straight navigation, I was responsible whilst I was on the bridge. I was the captain's representative to ensure that we achieved our task, but also stayed safe. Were there any particular contacts, patrols, or other memorable experiences from this operation? I'm sure there were. Does anything spring to mind immediately? Probably not. Uh, but I, I guess the thing I would say about this particular deployment was, for me, it was my first introduction about this is what we really do as a Navy. This is what we do when we project our military offshore to ensure we maintain Australia's security interests. So for me, even though we were on the other side of the world, this was just an amazing opportunity to participate in an activity that ensured the security and safety of Australians at home. Uh, the boarding operations, all of the other things that we did, as well as it was the first time that I had uh, visited any of the countries in the Middle East. So we visited Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and a number of other countries in the Middle East and their culture is so different, particularly as a woman visiting some of these places. And it was an opportunity for me to see how things are different on the other side of the world and reminded me how lucky I am to be an Australian. So aside from Operation Damask, were there any other ops in the 90s that you took part in? Yes, so uh, East Timor. As you're aware, in late 1999, um, Australia was involved in activities uh, in East Timor. I was in support of Operation uh, Warden, which was around uh, September, October 1999. And uh, that was something for us. So I was a warfare officer by then. So we were very focused on what our tactics and procedures might be, how we would manoeuvre the ship and what we would do and how we would support the other ships who were also there, as well as the troops on the ground. So we were then in a joint activity and a joint environment where our role was to ensure that we supported what the Australian forces were doing on the ground in East Timor and make sure that we provided the best possible capability throughout the operation. In 2000, you found yourself spending some time with the US Navy. That was an amazing experience. 
It was an amazing opportunity to work with the United States Navy. When I joined in the 80s, I never expected to be living and working in the United States. So I was posted uh, to a place called Damneck in Virginia uh, on the East Coast, a couple of hours south of Washington. And I was involved in the management and development of the combat system software for our then FFGs. We still have a couple of those in service. And I got the opportunity to observe what I believe to be probably the largest, certainly then, but also the most capable Navy in the world. I worked with some incredibly professional people who had a level of expertise of the software and the the ships and the capability, as well as it was another cultural experience for me, living and working in the United States. Also, the people that we socialised with, the people that we met, we created a number of relationships and friendships that I still retain today. Uh, And I am very grateful for that opportunity because it just once again allowed me to see a different view and a different Navy. It's one that everyone remembers. Where were you when 9-11 happened? Well, we were living in the United States. Uh, When 9-11 happened, I was at work and uh, one of my colleagues came in and said, oh, an aircraft has flown into the World Trade Centre and we immediately assumed it was a small Cessna, that it wasn't anything to be thought of. But then within about 15 minutes, they came back in and said, "Uh, it's happened again and they're jetliners. And that immediately made everybody pay attention, essentially, and we, we were all in shock. There's no two ways about it. People just simply could not believe that this had occurred. And I remember watching the two towers fall on television and being just in complete shock of how could this possibly have happened and what what will happen now. And it was an interesting perspective to watch the reaction from the Americans around me. So from my perspective as an Australian, I don't think I felt it as much as they did because they saw their country, I think in some ways, falling apart around them. And they weren't quite sure how how to recover from it, I think, initially. And it took them a while to recover from the shock and then work out how are we going to recover from this? How are we going to move forward? And to their credit, they've done a fantastic job. It's not long into the new millennium until you're posted as the executive officer on HMAS Melbourne. What are the key responsibilities and duties of that position? As the second in command of a major warship, uh, as the XO, I felt like I had a huge responsibility and probably second to the captain, I did. So I was responsible as the second in command to support the CO, but also responsible for the executive department, which includes all of our sailors who are involved in communications, involved in operations, but also involved in gunnery, ship's husbandry, and all of the upper deck uh, requirements of the ship. At the same time, there's a management and leadership role that comes with being the XO to set the example, to be a role model, but also to maintain a level of discipline and understanding through the ship. From my perspective, I think as EXO was probably one of the most challenging times of my career, simply because it was one where I was really learning my way. It was the first time that I had been in such a leadership and management position 
where I had responsibility for over 220 other people. And we deployed to the Middle East during my time as XOs. So there was an increased level of tension, but also an increased level of obligation to keep everybody safe. And in some ways, I felt like I was looking after 220 children. And I, and I don't mean that in a simplistic way. I just mean simply like I felt responsibility for all of these people to make sure that they got home to their families safely at the end of the deployment. So safety of our people, but also achieving the mission were high on our level of responsibility and high on our level of focus throughout the deployment. You find yourself back in the Gulf on board the Melbourne. Can we talk about your experiences on Operations Catalyst and Slipper? So as I mentioned, uh, Operation Damask, we spent the majority of our time in the Northern Red Sea conducting operations, whereas during Operations Catalyst and Slipper, we spent it um, in the Arabian Gulf. Our responsibility was to spend the majority of our time mainly in the northern part of the Gulf, the application of the UN sanctions. Our job was to make sure that we provided security, we provided stability, we provided a presence so that the troops on the ground and all of the other activities around the Middle East uh, could continue. And we provided, in my opinion, a valuable contribution to the effort at the time. So what was your personal experiences on these operations? I guess it varied uh, depending on what we were doing at the time. I found it incredibly rewarding to be able to be part of a, a group of people who deployed away from their families for months at a time, which, as you know, isn't always easy, particularly for those with young families um, who were left at home. Ensuring that we maintained people's motivation, but also that we tried to make it fun for those who were away, particularly around things like Christmas and birthdays and family activities and all of those sorts of things. So it was a constant challenge, um, both from a mission perspective, but also from a personal perspective. But I think in a lot of ways, I learned so much from all of these opportunities that I've tried to take something away from each operation from a leadership perspective or something that happened to make sure that I was constantly learning from the experiences that I was having at the time. So from my perspective, it was just it was just a constant evolution of learning, but also a constant situation whereby we were trying to maintain the motivation of those around us, uh, but also keep them focused on the mission. So your time on Melbourne ends then after a stint in the Navy workforce planning and working as the staff officer to the Chief of Navy, you find yourself back at sea in 2008 on HMAS Melbourne, but this time in command. And that was just a privilege and an honour. Uh, I was entirely comfortable with Melbourne, obviously, since I had been XO of that ship a few years prior. I knew how the ship worked. I knew how to operate it. The challenge for me was to bring together the crew and the heads of department into a cohesive team that we could implement and achieve whatever task we were assigned. So for me, that was just an amazing learning experience, but also such a privilege to be given the honour to take one of our Navy's finest warships to sea with around about 200 people on board, lead them, manage them, keep them safe, obviously. But I, I look back on that time and just think, wow, what a great opportunity that was. And I'm very grateful for that opportunity. In 2012, you promoted to captain. What was your new role in the Navy? I was posted uh, as the Director of Operations at Headquarters Jock. 
So we also call it the director of the Joint Control Centre. Essentially, I was in charge of a team of watchkeepers who were focused on our operations, both globally, regionally, but also domestically. So we were monitoring events that were happening across the world. We were focusing on all the activities that the ADF members were involved in anywhere in the world, including UN missions, uh, but also events such where humanitarian aid or disaster relief responses might be required in the event of, for example, cyclone, tsunami responses, earthquake, and at the moment, the topical uh, issues are volcanic eruptions across uh, the Southwest Pacific, and there's also one in Bali. So we were very focused on also, at that time, border protection. So Australia's security, that was a very topical activity, both politically, but also operationally for us, because there were a number of boat arrivals that were occurring in the northwest of Australia with hundreds and hundreds of asylum seekers coming to Australia on a monthly basis. That was a high point of tension for us, but also a high point of risk for all of those teams at sea who were intercepting those boats, but ensuring the safety as much as possible of all involved. So at the end of the year, you hit the water again in command of HMAS Success. During your command, you partake in a search for the missing Malaysian Airlines flight MH370. What can you tell us about that? In the first instance, I never expected to get a second command of a warship at sea. My selection uh, came a little unexpectedly. As you're probably aware, Success had had a difficult couple of years prior to me taking command, both from a personnel perspective, but also from a mechanical and sustainability perspective. So my job was to reinvigorate the team and develop the crew into a cohesive team that we could rebuild the ship back into the battle tanker that we knew she was and overcome the issues of the past. Uh, the first few months in command, uh, we spent, you know, trying to, from a maintenance perspective, get the ship uh, ready to go to sea and achieve her mission. Uh, and so by the end of 2013, we were back at sea doing what we do best and ready for whatever challenge that was going to come our way. We never expected in 2014 when we were conducting border protection and security operations uh, in the north that we would be tasked to search for MH370. That was a task that obviously took us uh, down to the southern Indian Ocean where conditions were probably the worst I think I have ever seen in my 30 years in the Navy and many years at sea. It was rough, it was cold, search conditions were difficult. We were the first Australian warship on scene and I was the on-scene commander throughout the search for MH370 from a military perspective. But the team were focused. They knew that this was a real-world activity where people were relying on us to do our jobs. So we spent quite a significant amount of time keeping the team focused, ensuring they were searching, because we were so conscious that there were 239 families of the crew and passengers on board that airliner who were desperately waiting for answers. And it was our job to do the best we could to provide those answers for them. Unfortunately, we did not find any wreckage from the missing airliner. And as you know, since uh, the search, there has been parts of the airliner found further to the west of where we were searching. But it was 
a very significant challenge for me as a leader to maintain the motivation of the team throughout the search. They were very focused on the families and ensuring we did our best. But as we came towards the end of the search, people were starting to wonder, were we searching in the right place? A question that I, I could not answer, except to continue to focus our team. A couple of the challenges we had at the same time, as I mentioned previously, the weather, the weather was really, really bad. And a couple of times I really had to struggle to make decisions about where I would put the ship to maintain the safety of the crew. So there was one particular incident uh, one night. We were well south in the southern Indian Ocean and I was, we were about 1,400 miles southwest of Perth, but we were 1,000 miles from Antarctica. There was a front coming across uh, from the west that was really going to cause us difficulty and we couldn't search anyway because I couldn't have anybody on the upper decks. So I made the decision to leave the search area to keep the ship safe and, and try to make it a little bit more comfortable uh, for the ship's company because the weather was um, tossing us around quite significantly. And I was trying to make the decision about which was the safest way for us to go, knowing that if anything happened to us, there was no help coming because the weather was so bad. But also, if anything happened to us, by the time anyone got to us because the weather was so bad, there would be nobody left. But every fibre in my being wanted to go north because that was towards home. But as a mariner, I made the decision to go south simply because that was what I considered to be the safest way for us to go, but knowing full well that I was going away from anything that might help us because there was nothing in Antarctica that was going to uh, be able to provide us any support. But for about 36 hours, we then tracked south, trying to escape the weather until it was reasonable enough and it had abated enough for us to slowly turn the ship around and come back up to the, the search area uh, and continue searching for MH370. But it's something that I always reflect on and I must admit that night I didn't really get much sleep worrying about whether I'd made the right decision or not. I look back on that now and think that that was probably one of the better decisions that I made knowing full well or taking into account the experience that I'd had as a mariner as opposed to removing the emotion from the decision making and trying to keep everybody safe. As the clock ticked on while doing the hunt for MH370, how was morale among the crew? I have to say it started out very high very focused, real-world operation, and particularly that success hadn't been involved in any activities of this nature for quite some years. They saw it as an opportunity. But you're right. Um, we searched for MH370 for over, over seven weeks, and we covered a lot of ground from way down uh, in the southern Indian Ocean right up to uh, further north at west of the Australian coast. As we continued to search and we continued uh, to not find anything of significance related to the aircraft. As I said previously, the ship's company started to question our activity. Were we in the right place? Is there another way? What should we be doing? We're still conscious that there are families looking for answers. So it became quite the challenge for us to keep them focused. So we came up with an idea to distract them. And my ship's warrant officer, she came up with this idea. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard the term. We set up a game of assassins to distract the team from uh, the mission. Not so much that we weren't focused on the mission. We just wanted to create something that they could talk about. 
and so for those that aren't familiar, the game of assassins involves a gold coin donation to charity for anybody who wants to play. Uh, and everyone is issued with a plastic knife of people who are playing and it has a name on it. And so the aim is for those playing to assassinate the person with their name on your plastic knife. The rules were uh, there could be no witnesses to assassinations. People in their sleeping spaces and recreation spaces could not be disturbed and a level of common sense needed to be applied. And I will tell a funny story. The first person uh, killed was the chaplain. The team knew that the chaplain came to the bridge every morning around six o'clock and a person on watch happened to have the chaplain on his knife. So they schemed all through the watch about how they were going to do it. So they worked it all out. Chaplain came to the bridge, young sailor, Padre, I'd really like to have a chat to you. Can we go out on the bridge wing? Of course, let's go out, let's have a chat. So they went out, no witnesses. The Padre said to him, okay, well, what would you like to chat about? And he said, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned and stabbed him. The chaplain was mortified. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but it was very funny. The chaplain was mortified that he was the first one killed. But I thought it was a rather ingenious way for the sailors to come up with a way um, to kill the chaplain. And I guess one thing I didn't say was uh, the winner of the, uh, the game is the person with the most plastic knives or the most kills at the end. Uh, and the winner was my youngest female able seaman on board who schemed with her messmates to come up with plans and she ended up with the most number of kills, which I thought was pretty funny. And the boys didn't seem to find it very funny, but I certainly did. So I'm guessing everyone that had a name on the knife, that name was also taking part in the game. So the chaplain signed up. Yes, you had to actually sign up to be part of it and you had to pay your gold coin donation. I didn't play, for those who might be wondering, simply because I didn't really want people to be tracking me down in the middle of, of the night uh, and sort of had a couple of other things to focus on. But no, I didn't participate. Well, in the search, is there any memories that stand out apart from the game of assassins? Oh, there are a lot, a lot of things that uh, stand out from that search. The focus, I guess, is the main thing that we were just constantly thinking about the families of those who were on board. There was a lot of media scrutiny of what we were doing, how we were doing it, a significant number of media interviews with outlets across the globe outlining how we were conducting the search. But also I was very conscious of maintaining the integrity of the ship, but also maintaining safety. And I previously talked about success had been through a lot of maintenance before we went to sea. Uh, and she was getting quite old at this point. So we had a number of issues from a maintenance perspective. Uh, and I do remember another particular night. What woke me up was silence. Silence in a ship is never a good thing. Um, and the silence meant that the ventilation had gone off in the ship. So I got up and went to the bridge. So I'm in, on the bridge in my pyjamas talking to the officer watch. And the next thing I hear was alarms, screaming, the officer watch taking calls, various things. And we had no power. We had no steering. We had no propulsion, no ventilation, no air conditioning. And we were essentially a cork in a bathtub at the whim of the weather. I was trying to get some information. The engineer came to the bridge to give me an update on, on what was going on. And he said to me, I don't know what the cause is. So in my head, I'm screaming, what do you mean you don't know? But I actually said to him, okay, well, what's the plan? 
and he said, well, okay, give me 20 minutes and I'll go back down and we'll see where we might be able to ascertain, do some fault finding and see where the problem might be. Not a problem. So at the moment, I'm still sitting on the bridge in my pyjamas. It's two o'clock on a Sunday morning and I'm thinking, okay, where, where to from here? And for those of you who know engineers will know that their 20 minutes is really in their minds or in, in anyone else's mind, probably an hour or so. So the 20 minutes that the engineer said to me, four hours later, we got electricity back, which meant that we then had fuel going into the engines. So another half an hour after that, we got uh, propulsion back and then we were able to get all of our other ancillaries going and, and get back towards what we were meant to be doing. But that was one of the many things that happened in success. There just seemed to be gremlins would get into the system and the next thing you know, the ship would be stopped in the water and we bobbing up and down. And the number of times I think I spent time on the bridge in the middle of the night just checking things, just that sixth sense of is everything okay and just making sure that everything was going along the way it should be. It was a unique experience because success always had a challenge for me. It's no matter what we did or where we were going, there was always seemed to be something that would surprise me that I wasn't quite expecting. So there are probably, if I think about it, many other stories like that where I look back and go, yeah, that ship has a sense of humour, definitely. What came after your time on success? So after success, I took a little bit of long service leave, spent some time uh, with my husband. We did some traveling. And then I uh, spent a year studying here at the Center for Defense and Strategic Studies, which was a great opportunity just to kick back and uh, think about the future, as well as uh, focus on the academic side of things. And then I moved into the office of the Chief of Defence Force as the Chief of Staff, which was an incredible, incredible position. I look back on now and think, wow, what an amazing exposure I had to the higher level strategic and political decision making that occurs around a broad range of activities across the ADF, whether it be human resources, operations, administration, correspondence, public relations, working with the public, everything. Every day in that office was as unpredictable as the next and I guess that's part of the appeal of working there. It was an amazing group of people to work with who were all very focused on ensuring support to the Chief of Defence Force. And I took so much away from that opportunity and that experience. It supports me in my current role and I'm quite certain that I'll draw on the experiences of that job for the remainder of my career in the RAN and beyond. But I am very thankful for that opportunity I learned so much about things that I hadn't previously been exposed to. The modern ADF is really marketing itself as a pro-woman equal opportunities organisation. Have you seen the culture in the Navy change for women over the years since you first started? Definitely the Navy I serve in today is incredibly different in many ways from the Navy I joined uh, back in 1987. And a lot of those are due to a lot of the cultural changes and cultural and diversity focus that has been implemented since I joined back in the 80s. A lot of it is also due to the, as you mentioned, the modern ADF, I should say, is due to the calibre of people that we have and the focus they have on not only the mission, but also on looking after each other. And the culture has developed not only to embrace women, but also embrace all sorts of diversity, whether it be from a religious perspective, a gender perspective, a background perspective, 
or just what any individual's views might be. We are much more approachable when it comes to diversity, much more lateral in our thinking, and I think we're much more accepting that there are different ways of doing things and that there isn't a standard way that things must be done. They're the positives, I think, that the culture has experienced from an, not only a Navy perspective, but also, I think, in the broader ADF. Are we perfect? No, there's still a lot for us to do. There's a lot of culture, I think, still to be developed, and we're working on that. But I would like to acknowledge the improvements and the changes that have occurred, and I have observed, pretty much in the last 30 years of my service. What's next for you? Good question. What's next? Well, I guess my focus now is on my current job as the J7 at headquarters job, which means I'm responsible for all the joint collective training for exercises and activities of the ADF. I'm also dual-hatted as the Director General of the Australian Defence Simulation and Training Centre. So there are a number of responsibilities I I have there around simulated training in the live, virtual and constructive environments now and into the future. But I guess for the foreseeable future, that is that is my focus. I am kept quite busy with the number of exercises and training activities that we have, ensuring that our simulated training for the ADF is focused on ensuring that the implementation of our new capabilities and new technologies such as the air warfare destroyer, uh, the joint strike fighter, the future submarine, that we are able to train efficiently and effectively to ensure that when we introduce all of those capabilities, that we are able to fight and win uh, with all of them in whatever the task or mission that might be assigned by government. Looking back on all the decisions, challenges and operations you took part in, as well as signing up, would you have done everything the same? So I guess the 18-year-old me, knowing what I know now, would I have joined the Navy still? Definitely. Uh, would I have done everything the same? Of course not. I'm sure there are things that I would have done differently. Certainly lots of things I would have done better or smarter, knowing what I know now. I'm sure it would be quite fun to go back and do it all again with the level of knowledge now, but I guess that would take the challenge out of it, wouldn't it, to be doing it for the first time? It's nowhere near as much fun, I guess, when you, you know what you're getting yourself into. I think part of the fun of being in the military is it is so unpredictable. It is a new challenge. Things are different every day. There's nothing standard, I guess, about it. But I look back on it and think, yeah, what a great time it has been. I'd probably change a few things, probably approach things a little bit better, maybe test out some of my theories a bit better before implementing them. But in, in general, there's not very much I think I'd change. Well, Alison, thank you for your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Thomas Kay had this chat with Alison in October 2017. Our thanks go to Defence Media for organising the interview. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your app of choice to get great episodes like this one. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and we're on Twitter at LOTLpod. Give us a like too on Facebook or Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening and lest we forget.